Hi, my name is Victor, and you're listening to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. Are we infected with the gospel? That's the question we're asking today. The Bible tells us that if our faith is real, it is something that should engender good works that please God. So then, why do so many Christians act and live no differently than the rest of the world? Eric continues our series in James about real faith in the real world and helps us understand why our faith is shown by our actions. Welcome to the Challenge. Well, tonight we are continuing our series that we've been going over for the past few weeks now on James, uh, real faith in the real world. And tonight is really all about real faith. Um, so we're going to take a look at that. To start, I'm going to tell a story from my childhood about real faith in Santa Claus. I don't know if anyone else had real passionate faith in Santa when they were a kid, maybe. Thank you, Jonathan. Couple. (laughs) The story may not be as relatable if you don't, but um, I don't know what your Christmas traditions were, but for us, um, we opened presents on Christmas Eve. A little different. We would open them after after dinner on Christmas Eve. And, hmm. okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, we opened them after, after dinner on Christmas Eve. And the tradition was we, we kids would go hide in one of the bedrooms and Santa would come and, and, and bring out all the presents. And then Santa would ring a bell. And when the bell was rung, that was our cue to run out of the bedroom and try to catch Santa before he went back up the chimney. <laughs> I don't know what the plan was when we caught Santa. Uh, tie him up, make him give us more presents, probably get us on the naughty list next year. But that was what we did. That was our tradition. And so every year, uh, right as we were finishing up Christmas Eve dinner, my dad would go into the routine. He'd be like, oh, I think I, I, think I hear some hooves on the, on the roof. And me as a kid who really, really believed in Santa, I'd be like, what? You know, I'd try to run outside, get up on the roof somehow. He's like, no, no, go hide, go hide. So Santa can come and bring the presents. So me and my sister would go into the bedroom. My sister's four years younger than me. Uh, my grandma was in there too to guard the door so we wouldn't escape. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have my ear pressed to the door because I have to wait and, and hear the bell at the exact second it rings, because I have to go there and catch Santa. So I'm, I'm listening. My sister's like, hey, aren't you excited about Santa? I'm like, shut up, just shut up. <laughs> we got to listen. And so you can hear like a pin drop in the room. Um, the bell rings. I wrench the door open, probably knock my grandma over, and I'm sp- <laughs> sprinting down the hallway. My dad's in the hallway videotaping this. It never really occurred to me, like, why aren't you catching Santa too? But <laughs> So I'm running. We get into the living room. All the presents are there. The milk and cookies are gone, the whole thing. We never caught Santa, though. However, my grandpa, he always almost caught Santa, and he always would catch, like, a piece of clothing from Santa. Like, one year he got his boot, and he showed us this boot. He's like, I caught Santa's boot, but he escaped. One year he got his sock without the boot. (laughs) And as a kid who really believed in Santa, I was like, my grandpa's a legend. Like, how did he do that? So I really, really, really had real faith in Santa Claus. Now, eventually, obviously, I figured out that Santa isn't real. Hopefully, you also have figured that out by now. Um, my sister is four years younger, so when I confronted my parents about this, they're like, yeah, yeah, he's not real, but, but don't tell Nicole because, you know, we want the magic to keep going for her. So I said, fine. So next year comes around, my dad goes into the routine, you know, who's on the rooftop? And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. And, and I'm not as excited as the year before. And so we go into the bedroom, I take some cookies off the plate and eat them as we're in the bedroom. My sister this year has her ear pressed to the door and I'm like, hey, aren't you excited about Santa Claus? She's like, shut up, please. We gotta listen, we gotta listen. 
The bell rings, we run out, knock over grandma, the whole thing. My dad's filming, I kind of give him the thumbs up as I'm walking <laughs> down the hallway, no urgency. My grandpa has caught some piece of clothing from, my, uh, from Santa, but we, we don't catch him. Um, now, if you were to look at the two videos of those two years that my dad took, it would be so obvious, so obvious which year I actually believed in Santa Claus. You could see from my actions. It didn't matter what I said, you know, both years I, I said I believed in him, but my actions revealed what I really believed in my heart. And that's just a principle that's true in life. What we do, not really what we say, tends to reveal what we believe deep down inside. I mean, you can see examples of that all over life. You think of people who say, oh, the most important thing to me is family. Family, family, family. Family always comes first. And then they take this job that requires a bunch of travel, extra hours at the office, less time with family. They said family was most important, but what did their actions actually show that maybe the, the career ladder was more important to them? And the same is true with being a follower of Jesus. There are, there are many people who say they're a Christian. Just a quick Google search will show you that 210 million people in America, 62%, it's a little lower than it's been in years past, but 210 million people say they're Christian. But, you know, if you, if you look at America, that, that can't be true, right? You just look at how people live their lives. They, they do have not accepted the gospel and trust Jesus. They trust themselves and their own talents, for sure, and not Christ. They follow their desires or their career aspirations, but they're not following Jesus. They say they're Christian, but the way that they live reveals that they do not follow Jesus. They don't have real faith as described in the scripture. So tonight we're gonna to take a look at this, what the scriptures say in James chapter two about real faith and the mark that it leaves on our lives. This comes from James chapter two, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now we're gonna be hearing works a lot in this talk. What does that mean? Well, works is referring to doing God's will. It's obeying him, doing what he considers good and, and for his glory. It's, it's following the Bible, following Jesus. And James in this passage starts off with this question, right? It's about a faith that someone claims to have, but does not actually change how they live their life. There are no works, right? They're not following God's will. They're not obeying Jesus. And we as the reader are supposed to answer these questions negatively. What, what good is it, this kind of faith? Well, it's, it's, it's no good. Can this faith save? No, um, it, it can't. And to illustrate this type of faith and what James is talking about, he gives this example of this person who says very nice things, right? Go in peace. Seems like a Christ-like thing to say. It is a Christ-like thing to say. But when you look at their actions, they don't actually help the person in need. They kind of ignore them, which is very un-Christ-like. And right, James asks, what, what good are those words? No good is the answer. And what James is arguing here is that this person's actions, not their words, display what they really have faith in. And he concludes that this type of faith is just all about words and not action. Faith without works is useless, dead, he says there in verse 17. Now at this point, red flags may be going off in your mind. 
Because this seems to be saying that to be saved for salvation, we need faith and works, that in some way we need to earn the forgiveness of God, that, you know, otherwise our faith would be useless. But isn't that a, a false gospel? It is. You know, we, we don't need to earn God's forgiveness. The, the passage that most people bring up when they're challenging this verse is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's take a look at what that says. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now that's pretty clear, right? Verse eight, eight, eight through nine, it's not a result of works. It's only by the grace of God that we are saved. Um, the, tr the truth of the gospel is that there is no way, no way that we could earn our salvation. No amount of good work will do it. Our, our sin is just too great. Our debt is too massive. As Romans 3.23 says, we all fall short of the glory of God. And as Romans 6.23 says, as a result, we all deserve death. That is the penalty for sin. But God has shown us love and kindness in Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He lived a perfect life here on earth, never sinned, but he died anyway. He took our place by dying on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. And then he rose again, proving that he was actually God. And the good news, the gospel, is that because of what Jesus has done, we all can be forgiven. We have no chance to earn that. No chance to earn the forgiveness of God, but we can receive it as his gift, his grace. We just need to accept the truth that, that Jesus is real. He was God, is God, and the only way to salvation. And we need to entrust our lives to, to him. That, that is real faith, right? Faith that saves and if we were to stop reading Ephesians, we would conclude that James is wrong. Doesn't need works. We don't have to earn it. But Ephesians does not stop here. Paul, who's writing this, goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, our salvation is not based on works. Not at all. We can't earn it. But God fully intends works to be the result of our faith, that we should walk in them. That's why we are saved. See, something happens when you become a Christian. Real faith changes how we live life. Really accepting the gospel changes that. And that's evident all across scripture. You see all throughout the Bible, for example, Galatians 5, 17 says, when you become a Christian, you're a new creation. Something new has happened. Something new is true about you. Ephesians 4, 23 to 24 talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, something new. Romans 6 talks about being dead to sin, alive to God, that we are slaves to righteousness. The biblical idea is that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, something has changed and you are no longer the same. You have new life. That's why we say we're born again. What James and Ephesians and the rest of the Bible agree on is that this new life is characterized by good works. We follow Jesus now. We obey him. We trust him. The spirit of God is working in you as you progressively turn away more and more from sin and more and more to follow Jesus more closely. Now, there's always this theoretical question, right? Like, well, what about the person who, who accepts Jesus, then genuinely accepts Jesus, then does nothing? Just kind of sits on the couch and, and sins, never reads the Bible. Would that person still be saved? Would they still go to heaven? Theoretically, the answer is yes. Right? Jesus' death on the cross paid for all your sin, no matter how frequent, no matter how big, no matter how great, every single one. 
nothing you can do to earn his forgiveness. But practically, according to the Bible, that person doesn't exist. A person with real faith will not live that kind of life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. True Christians, people with real faith, want to follow God's ways. They don't have to. They want to. They want to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James talks about in chapter 1. I see good, good works are kind of like a symptom of faith and being a Christian. It's not like COVID. You all remember COVID. You could be asymptomatic. Bad flashbacks, I'm sorry. Um, but it's not like COVID. You can have COVID and no one would be able to see that. Christianity, real faith is more like chicken pox. You have it. Everyone knows you have it. All right? You live differently now. People can see a change in you. Now, to be clear, as I say that, two things to be clear on. The first thing is this is not about doing good things to be seen by others and to impress them. Matthew chapter six makes it very clear. Jesus is talking there. The goal of good works is not to impress others, to put on a show for other people so that they think well of you. The point of doing good things is to do good things because that is the right thing to do as followers of Christ. That's it. It's not about building ourselves up or looking impressive to others. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this is not saying that if you have real faith that you will not sin. If you're sinning and you're like, oh my gosh, am I actually a Christian? That's not what this is saying. That is a lie that the enemy can use in your life to discourage you and get you to doubt. But the Bible is very clear. If you have truly accepted the gospel, you are saved forever. You're a new creation, right? You can take a look at Romans 8, 38, 39, uh, Jude 24. There's, there's quite a few verses that talk about that. But the Bible is also clear that genuine Christians still sin while we're here on earth. Romans 7 talks about the battle that we have with the flesh. So that, that's not what this is talking about. The idea though here is that if you look at the life of a Christian, you should be able to tell that that person lives their life differently. Why? They have a new master. They follow Jesus now. It's not themselves anymore that they're following. It's Christ. And they want to do that. If you say you're a Christian, but you see no change in your life, there's no growth, there's no real concern for the things of God, that is when you should be concerned and, and think, have I actually accepted the gospel, the real gospel? The fact that we are not enough and we need Jesus for salvation. Nothing we can do can earn it. That is real faith. James goes on, going back to James in the next verses, 18 and 19, to say this. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Trying to separate the two, right? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Symptoms. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what James is saying here is that real faith is more than just an intellectual belief that Jesus was real. It's more than just knowing he died for your sins and saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? He gives this example of the demons. Demons believe in Jesus too. They believe he exists just like we do. The difference is demons do not turn to Jesus. They don't rely on Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. And that's, that's why they shudder because they know what's going to happen to those who do not turn to Christ for forgiveness. See, real faith, what James is saying here is accepting the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way to salvation and living accordingly as a result, following him, doing good works. You can't separate the two. Um, they go together and they demonstrate real faith. The next few verses, which I don't have memorized, so we're going to wait a little bit here, but the next few, the next few verses, they kind of give, a, they highlight a little more 
what, what this looks like in real life by showing two examples from the Old Testament. So here's the first one starting in verse 20. It's the story of Abraham or snippets of the story of Abraham. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So there, there's two events that are referenced here from Abraham's life. The first one chronologically is right there in verse 23. That's a, that's a quote of Genesis 15, 6. And in Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham to make him uh, make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the implication is that these descendants will also believe in God and trust in him. That's an amazing promise, right? Just this blessing that would come from Abraham. And what makes it more amazing of a promise is that Abraham has no kids and is either 70 or 80 years old, somewhere in there at this time. Not quite the, the childbearing years. Um, only, only God could do that, right? Only God could bless Abraham with children when he was that old. Um, but Abraham believes him. He, he trusts in God with real faith. And that's what that verse there in uh, verse 20, 23 is referencing. He believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He truly trusted in God. But he, didn't, he wasn't able to demonstrate that until the second event that is referenced here in verse 20, uh, 21, where it talks about sacrificing his son. You see, eventually, Abraham miraculously has a child. He names him Isaac. That's when he's 100 years old, by the way. So maybe 30 years after the original promise. You, you would think like, wow, that has to be the end of the story after all this waiting, all this time. Like, when is this kid going to come that's going to start these descendants as numerous as the stars? Um, he finally has them, but then God commands Abraham to sacrifice him. What the heck? Could you imagine? what that would be like. And Isaac isn't even a baby at this point. He, he's a youth. So Abraham has gotten to know him a little bit after 30 years of waiting for this promise. And then a few more years getting to uh, build a relationship with his son. God tells Abraham to sacrifice him. Now, if Abraham was just saying, yeah, I believe in God, I believe you. This is probably where the line would be drawn, right? This is probably where that would end, that, that, those words. There's no way, no way he would do this but he does because he has real faith and he lives his life in light of that faith. He truly believed that God would be able to provide no matter what God tells him to do. And so we see in Genesis 22, starting in verse nine, he builds that altar to sacrifice his son on. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. He showed the symptoms. He trusted God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He keeps going in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, if we were watching a video of this, would you have any question, any question that Abraham actually believed in God? No way. 
Right? There's no way he did all of this because he had real faith. And yes, he said the Lord will provide, but he showed that he meant that. He actually trusted in that. And if we go back to the verses in James chapter two, which are on the next slide, take a look at James 22, right? His faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. He believed way back in Genesis 15 when God originally gave that promise, but he proved that that belief was genuine by his obedience here in Genesis 22. He didn't just talk about having faith in God. He showed it, demonstrated it by faithfully following, even when it didn't make sense or was extremely extremely difficult. His works revealed that his faith was real. And that's what James is getting at here in 24 when he says he was justified by his works and not his faith alone. It's not that his works saved him. He was already saved back in Genesis 15 when he trusted in God. But his works justified the fact that that faith was real and genuine. That's Abraham's story. James also talks about the story of Rahab in 25 and 26. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead, James concludes. Rahab's story is, is very similar to Abraham in the sense that she had very, very difficult decisions that she had to make. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho. And God had sent two spies from the Israelites into Jericho to spy out the, the city in order to invade it. And Rahab takes them in and, and houses them at her house. And the king of Jericho hears about this and goes to Rahab and is like, hey, give up the spies. But instead of giving up the spies, Rahab hides them and later helps them escape. Now imagine the, just the danger that she put herself in, right? If the king finds these spies, she's dead with them. No question, he would have killed her. She's hiding them. She put her life on the line. She's also kind of going against her town, right? Her homeland. Why, why would she do that in that incredibly difficult situation? Well, this is what Rahab has to say in Joshua chapter two, when she's talking to the spies. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. So Rahab had heard these stories of all these miracles that God had worked as the Israelites escaped from Egypt and as they went through the land, how God protected them and provided for them. And she, as a result, believed that God was real. She has faith. And again, she says that, but if we were to watch a video of what she actually did, there would be no question that she actually believed that. She acted in light of it. She had faith and good works. And James gives us these examples because in both Abraham and Rahab's case, they had the symptoms of true believers. They didn't just talk about trusting God. They did it. They did it by God's help, right? And when their lives, their, their futures were literally on the line, when the pressure was on, what they truly believed came out. But it was real faith showed that their faith was genuine. Their works justified their faith, as James would say. And so the question tonight, the application is, what does the way you live say about your faith? That's a very challenging question, but it's one we all must grapple with. Does your faith, or does the way you live justify your faith in Jesus? Show it to be true, or does it expose your faith in Jesus, revealed to be not real at all? Very difficult question. 
very difficult question, but we need to examine ourselves when the pressure's on, when we have tough choices, when we're prioritizing what we want to do with our lives every single day, how we go about school and relationships. Do I have the symptoms of being a Christian, of this new life that God has started in Christians? And if not, why not? If not, why not? Is it because you're disobedient? It's possible, right? If you are, I really do encourage you, you know, start to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and as James talks about in James chapter one. But perhaps it's more, more serious. Perhaps you haven't actually internalized the truth of the gospel, accepted it, that Jesus Christ is the only way for you to be saved. And you actually need to, to do that because your faith is, is dead, as James would say. And if that is you or you think that might be you, I encourage you, you know, talk to a staff member about that. They can, they can help you sort through that. Um, but we, we need to wrestle with this question and really, really understand where we stand in light of the gospel. So to end, told the story of Abraham. We told the story of Abraham, uh, Rahab. This is my story. Now, growing up, I said I was a Christian. Anyone who asked me, I would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I went to church. But the church's teaching was, was not the best theologically. It was not completely biblical. Uh, my church growing up focused on self-esteem, building up your self-esteem. If you believe in yourself, you can achieve, you can do it, right? And the belief was that God was really there to help you get what you wanted. Struggling at work, just trust God and you'll get that promotion eventually. You want to do well in school, just keep praying. God's going to get you good grades. Just keep being a good person. And God... God will give you whatever you want, that nice, comfy life that you desire. And sure, they mentioned Jesus dying on the cross. It was a church. Um, again, you got to say that. Um, but, but sin was not really talked about that much. It was much more about you. You are enough. You can do it. And every week they asked, who would, who would want to invite Jesus into their heart? Me, every single week. Of course I would. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Who would want that? I want a good job. Who, who wouldn't want that? I want success in life. And that I was, that, that's what I believed growing up. That if I was just a good enough person. You know, didn't murder anyone, didn't steal anything. Was a nice, friendly guy that God would give me what I wanted because that was what he was there for. But that's not Jesus. That's not the God of the Bible. Do you know who that is? Santa Claus. <laughs> I believed in Santa Claus growing up. Now, I thought he was Jesus, but that's what Santa Claus does. You do good throughout the year, you get presents. And sure, there's the threat of the naughty list, but no one's really on the naughty list, right? You have to be really, really bad for that. Most people, their good outweighs their bad. And God, I'm on the good list, so please give me what I want. And so I would tell you, yes, I am a Christian. I believe Jesus died for my sins, but I had no idea what that meant. I, I didn't understand the depth of my sin at all because I thought I was a good person. I was doing fine. You know, in reality, I was a sinner. If you look at my life, there were no symptoms of being a Christian. I was in no way concerned with glorifying God or obeying his ways. I was all about glorifying myself, right? I can do it. I can achieve. I am enough. But my life was a wreck. <laughs> On the outside, it looked great. Top of my class, had all these awards, was a great athlete. But the inside, I was just so lost. I became very, very deeply addicted to pornography. I was extremely selfish. I helped classmates all the time with homework, not because I cared about them, because I wanted them to know how smart I was. And that's what my life was about. 
making sure that everyone knew that I was great, that I was enough. And as a result, I just felt this deep, deep emptiness and frustration because with every single good grade, there was just another one to get, just another test. Every award, another award to win. I was never enough. And I got to college and I thought maybe it would change and I did very well. The first semester, first year in college, got 4.0 first semester, 3.9 second semester because of Professor Vickers, who you'll remember from <laughs> last time. But I had, I had everything I wanted. I was on the fast track to success, but in reality, I was headed straight for hell. I was dead in my sin. My faith was dead, no matter what I said, because I didn't actually trust in Jesus. I trusted in myself, no matter what I said. Then, sophomore year, I joined Christian Challenge. And for the first time, first time in my whole life, I got to see people who had real faith. And they were similar to me in a lot of different ways. They were also good at school, doing well in classes. They loved sports, got along great. But they were so, so fundamentally different from me at the same time because God actually mattered in their lives. And I could see that they lived their lives for him. You know, they, they worked hard in school for sure, but school is not their hope. Their hope is in Jesus. You know, they, they served with no expectation of serving in return. They loved each other genuinely. Were they perfect? No. But even when they messed up, they like went to each other and like forgave each other and like built up the relationships again. I was like, what is going on? This is crazy. I've never seen anything like that. They had the sympathy. They were new creations. They were following Jesus. They were doing what the Bible said because their faith was real. And I had never seen that before. And I got around them more and more. Jeremy started sharing the gospel with me, what the Bible actually said about Jesus, not this Santa Claus Jesus that I believed. And more and more, I realized I am not a Christian, but I want to be because through their lives, I saw that God was real. They were different, not because they had great self-esteem, but because they realized they were not enough. They needed Jesus to cover their sin. That was the only explanation. And so I became a Christian at FDC that year in 2011. I accepted the free gift of salvation, I turned from my life of sin and I said, God, I want the life you have for me. I need Jesus. I am not enough. I need you. And in that moment, by the work of the Spirit, I became a new creation. He saved me. Very few people in this room knew me back then, but if you were to watch a video, it would be so obvious to you that I'm totally different now. My life is new. I have the symptoms. Am I perfect? No. <laughs> No way. Anyone who knows me knows that. But every day, by the grace of God, I'm taking steps. He is working in me. I'm doing good works, not because I have to. I'm going to heaven already because I want to. I want to because I trust that God is right. His ways are right. The Bible's real. It matters that his way of living is far better than mine. I want to glorify and please the one who saved me. So to end... I want to encourage you all tonight. There are 210 million people in America who say they're a Christian. And I know that some of them are just like I was saying that, but have no idea about what the gospel is really about. Believing in Jesus clause, I guess. They don't have real faith. They believe in themselves, not in Jesus. Perhaps, maybe even some people in this room, I don't know, but evaluate this, examine your faith as James is talking about in chapter two. Is it just words or are you a new creation? Are you actually living things out by the grace of God? 
And if you do have real faith, let me encourage you with this. In addition to the 210 million Christians in America, there are also 120 people who do not believe in Jesus and don't care um, to. We have a chance to help point them to Jesus, though. Just take USC, 50,000 students. Many do not know the hope of Christ. But God can use us and our faith and our good works to show them Jesus is real, that he makes a difference. Because that's exactly what happened to me in Christian Challenge when I was a student. God used the people there to point me to Jesus. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I challenge us tonight, let's be a group like this. You know, let's be a group with real faith who are doing good works, not because we have to earn forgiveness, we have it, but because God can use us in the lives of other people to turn them to Jesus. And God's ways are just right. We believe that. So let me pray for us and we'll have the band come up and sing some more. God, thank you um, that Jesus is enough. Um, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you, God, that um, <laughs> we would have no way to be reconciled to you without Christ. So I thank you so much for the truth of the Bible that you reveal that to us. I thank you so much that you don't just give us new life, but you help us turn from sin and, and live the life that you've wanted us to live all along. So God, I pray for everyone in this room that we would trust Jesus more and more. For those who've never trusted him, I pray that they would you would work in their lives. And, and for those who do, I pray, God, that our good works would shine out, that we wouldn't do those to look cool or impressive, but we would do that because we love you. We want to serve and follow you. I pray that many, many would see that and see that you are real and that you matter and you are glorious. I love you so much, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Music and Spotify and Amazon Music, where you can also leave us a review so that we can get these resources into the hands of other people. We meet every Thursday night on the campus of the University of Southern California, so get involved and find out more about us, upcoming events like our Fall Discipleship Conference, and weekly small groups on Instagram at USC Challenge and on our website, uscchristianchallenge.com.